You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2212 South Broad Street. For more information, visit us at circleofhope.church. Hey, everybody. That was a nice intro. Thank you. <laughs> um, cool, yeah. So um, it's nice to see all your faces. It's also nerve-wracking to look out and see all your faces, but... <laughs> Still nice. I'm excited to get to share some thoughts about um, one of the first and foundational parables of, of Christ. Um, at least in Matthew, it's the first parable that he, that he shares. Uh, the parable of the sower. Um, while I've given a number of talks uh, during my career as a student and researcher of philosophy, something does feel far more personal about sharing my thoughts with you here uh, as a part of this church, so bear with me since the nerves are just a bit more intense than normal. Um, Also note, though, that the ideas that I'm presenting here are just relatively new to me uh, because I've just kind of been stewing on thoughts that are related to what I'm going to talk about for the last year, but this is the first time I've sat down and tried to actually write out some some stuff on it. Um, Even still, I'm excited to get to explore the gospel with everybody, and I look forward to thoughts and comments during talkback. It's funny, one of the differences I'm noticing already while I'm up here in philosophy when I give a talk, I'm expecting everybody to be out there like formulating really fine objections and whatnot. (laughs) Just fine, you can object all you want, but (laughs) it's just a different atmosphere here. Um, It's nice. So the talk is going to proceed in three steps. First, I'm going to just give some uh, introductory background remarks about the parable. Uh, And then we're going to read through the parable together, and I'll briefly discuss the interpretation that Jesus gives immediately after um, those verses. And then third, I'll transition into the meat of the presentation, which will um, loosely be about the transformative power of Christian hope as opposed to belief. Um, Rachel has asked me to comment on on Jesus' parable of the sower, or other people... Uh, might call it the parable of the soil. Kind of an interesting distinction there already. But the parable is found in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, which can't can't be said about all of the other parables at least. Um, It's also found in the non-canonical gospel of St. Thomas, interestingly enough, which is kind of a relatively controversial book. Um, The going view, though, is that Mark's account uh, of the synoptic gospels is the earliest written gospel of the four, and that Matthew, Mark, Matthew and Luke used Mark's uh, as source material for their own projects. Um, so it follows that Mark's version of the parable is actually the earliest recorded version um, of the parable. Uh, yet each of the three versions of the parable are strikingly similar in both content and form. So it kind of carries across all three of the synoptic gospels, which I found pretty neat. Um, because Matthew and Luke wrote about the they used Mark as a, as a source, but they didn't write, they weren't talking to each other when they were writing. So uh, the story, uh, or the parable, uh, um, survived that um, first branch. Um, yeah, so the biggest difference, though, between the parable is where it's placed in the timeline of Jesus' ministry. Um, I don't really know that much about why the differences would be significant, so I'm not going to comment on that, but it is worth noting. Um, and all that being said, I'm just going to focus on Matthew's version of the, of the parable, assuming that similar, because of the content and form, similarities in content and form, I'm going to assume that similar theological comments could be drawn out from, from the others as well. 
So the parable appears in chapter 13 of Matthew's gospel, um, and Jesus has already accomplished a great deal at this point, having been um, like miraculously conceived, obviously, born, baptized, tested in the wilderness. He'd also uh, been called, he, he had also called at, um, at this point many, if not all, of the disciples. He delivered the Sermon on the Mount, calmed a storm, healed many people, had run-ins with the Pharisees. He'd already done quite a bit. And after all of this, he begins to offer a number of teachings in the form of parables, seeing as the direct unmediated teachings like the Sermon on the Mount were causing a bit of a ruckus. Um, So the first parable that Jesus delivers is the parable of the sower. So let's read it together. If you want, you can open up your preferred like Bible app or whatever and uh, click your way to Matthew 13, 3. Um, Otherwise, I'm just going to read it out loud. (laughs) Um, So it reads, Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seeds fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Now, whenever, uh, when asked by the disciples why Jesus was starting to speak in parables, Jesus offers this pretty kind of funny and interesting two-part answer. Um, The first part of it kind of sets up this tongue-in-cheek sort of sarcastic moment, Um, Jesus tells the disciples that he speaks in parables because the disciples have been granted this secret kind of knowledge uh, that allows them to know the meaning of the parables while it might go over the heads of those other people listening. In short, he's telling them that he speaks in parables because they, the disciples, are granted a special, they're just special, (laughs) they have a special kind of knowledge. And yet the second answer to their query is interesting in light of this because he tells them the meaning of the parable. He has to explain it to them. So it's this funny, kind of ironic moment where Jesus is telling the disciples that he speaks in parables because they have secret knowledge um, by which they can understand them, but he also needs to explain the parables to them. So it strikes me as a pretty humbling moment, both for the disciples, obviously, um, and the reader of the text, us. Um, Often, I would hazard a guess most of us, uh, feel as though we have the answers when we're reading the Bible. We kind of are understanding what's going on, and yet the mystery of God will always prevail. So what is going on in the parable according to Jesus? Uh, in In the subsequent verses, he gives a little interpretation. First and notably, he tells us quite little about the sower of the seed, um, but a great deal more about the soil in which the seed is sown. He seems to skip over the sower entirely. Rather, it's taken as given that some seed has been sown by someone. And this represents the sharing of the message of the kingdom by someone. And fill in that blank with whoever it is you might want to fill in. It could be Jesus, it could be you, it could be some other person that's sharing the message. I take the content, though, of the message, which we'll talk about more in a moment, to be something along the lines of the general content of the Sermon on the Mount, along with other teachings of Jesus' ministry, this ministry of love. And when a person hears these teachings, a variety of responses are available, Jesus tells us. He says that the message might get stolen from the subject by some external agent, like the birds. It might get smothered by other internal conditions of the person. It might catch root for a moment, for instance, but fail to settle deep in the soil of the soul, 
and then it withers when, uh, when it faces any stress. Or it might just flourish and produce a beautiful crop. Uh, but the general point of the parable is to illustrate, I think, a number of things, actually. Um, but we should hope or aim to be the person in which the message flour uh, flourishes. Um, that being said, though, the parable does leave us with a number of other questions, um, two of which are, one, are we the good soil? Um, are we the soil in which the message of Jesus will flourish? Um, and two, assuming that we are, what methods should we use when we are sharing the message to other people? Um, now, I'd like for a moment now to pivot. It's going to get a little bit different, a <laughs> um, uh, little bit more like philosophy, technical stuff. But I'm gonna, I want to talk really briefly about belief, uh, particularly as it pertains to the question, what is a Christian? Um, so one common way to answer this question uh, about what, what is a Christian is to say that a Christian is any person who believes some proposition or set of propositions uh, relating to, you know, well, relevant propositions relative to God's uh, or Jesus's ministry, um, where a proposition is just a, a statement that's either true or false and a set of, or a set of propositions being uh, a set of statements that taken together can be true or false. So when I say proposition, I'm just talking about sentences that can either be true or false. That's it. Um, I read this to Allie earlier, and she was like, ah, you should change this. But, um, <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it was a little too late. So, <laughs> um, we <laughs> so we might say that a Christian is a person who believes the teachings of Jesus or believes that Jesus is a the Son of God, or believes that Jesus died and rose again, or a host of other iterations of similar proposition statements that can be true or false. Belief in philosophy is a central topic in a kind of sub-discipline called epistemology, or which is just the study of knowledge. And um, many people in that area accept that belief is just a kind of what's called a propositional attitude, which is just an attitude that the subject who has the belief takes about some proposition, a statement that's either true or false. So if I believe something, I'm assenting to a proposition as true. If I don't believe something, I'm saying it's false. So for example, belief that the sky is blue is just the affirmation of the proposition that the sky is blue. But belief has this other thing built into it, which is confidence, right? So uh, that example, the sky is blue, is a pretty weak belief because it would take me having to go outside and look up into the sky to see if the sky is blue at that particular time, <laughs> right? The sky could be gray or the sky could be dark because uh, it's nighttime. Um, so we can change the example a little bit to bake in some more confidence uh, to, to you know, make an example of this. So um, we could say that uh, the belief that the sky is blue on sunny days is the affirmation of the proposition that the sky is blue on sunny days. And we would all, I would hazard a guess, believe that the sky is blue on sunny days. <laughs> and we would be pretty confident of that. It would be weird to walk out on a sunny day and see a red sky. Um, so I'd suggest that when people say that the conditions for being a Christian are centered around belief, they're referring to this kind of attitude, an attitude where uh, they're confident in an affirmation of a given proposition statement that's either true or false, or set of propositions that relate to or center around the teachings of Jesus and his immediate followers. But I'm going to 
for the rest of the presentation, kind of push against this view um, that that isn't what uh, isn't how we should think about what it is to be a Christian. <laughs> um, John of Chrysostom, I think is how you pronounce it, uh, was a four fourth century church father, um, and he had a little comment, not a little commentary, he had a commentary on the Gospels, um, and he says about this specific parable, um, he says what follows, quote, how is it according to reason, how is it reasonable to sow seed among thorns or on stony ground or by the wayside? Indeed, in the material seed and soil of this world, it would not be reasonable, for it's impossible that rock should become soil, or that the way should not be the way, a path, or that thorns should not be thorns. But with minds and doctrines, it's otherwise. There it is possible that the rock be made rich soil, that the way should be no more trodden upon, and that the thorns should be extirpated. The parable of the sower doesn't really make that much sense Grant, like uh, when we're talking about um, souls or uh, people, um, provided we accept that people are dynamic and not static things. Um, the very message of the gospel is a transformative message, a, dyna a dynamic one that turns spiritual rocks into living soil. Um, so the pa this passage that I just read makes me wonder, under what conditions then is the message of the gospel transformative? Does the message of the gospel boil down to a set of propositions that we have to believe in order to qualify as a Christian? I'm going to suggest no. Um, now, a little bit more on beliefs here. Beliefs are also incredibly resilient things. Um, they don't change readily, and when they do, it's rarely for rational reasons. Um, this claim is widely accepted by philosophers, and my understanding is by psychologists as well. Um, but, but what we're looking for is the transformation of a rock into soil, if that's what we're looking for, offering a set of beliefs and rational reasons for holding those beliefs will likely not do. It's not going to transform a rock into soil. Luckily for us, belief isn't the only propositional attitude available or at our disposal. Hope, for instance, is another one, and a very important one, I think. If you could, I want you for a moment to place yourself in the shoes of a non-Christian. Even for a non-Christian, it's manifestly the case, I would argue, most of them, if you push them hard enough, will admit um, that something is awry in the world. Something doesn't seem right. Injustice abounds. Cruelty is preferred to mercy. The elite manipulate and control, take advantage of the poor. We all contribute, many of us even knowingly, including myself, to the grotesque plunder of the world. And it's just clear, manifestly, that something is disjointed and not as it should be and we can all recognize it. Now, still inhabiting this, the shoes of this non-Christian, consider the story of the gospel. The gospel readily admits that the world is not as it should be. It's fragmented and a shadow of what it could be, but the story doesn't end there. It's, that's not the only thing um, that's going on in the gospel. A determinate historical person, Jesus, has come to the earth with hopeful news. He tells us that a restorative project is underway, a project that aims to rehabilitate the world, making it as it should be. And this is no vain hope, since Jesus himself serves as a historical keystone in this project, a radical, an example of radical love that blossoms into a resurrection. Jesus is not alone in this either, though, he says. He suggests that the entirety of creation is going to undergo this blossoming. Heaven is going to reunite with earth in a loving union, and all things are going to be made right. 
Now, even still, from the perspective of a non-Christian, who wouldn't hope for a scenario like that? Um, obviously, it's a very general picture. There's more that is baked into the Christian worldview, I would argue. But at this very general level, who wouldn't want that to happen? <laughs> um, who wouldn't hope that the world can be restored and things made right, injustices made just, etc.? If presented then in the right way, already the rock begins to transform. It begins to soften. And that process has already begun. Now, you may be sitting here thinking that this Zach Agoff character, me, if you didn't remember my name, um, is, uh, is uh, being awfully silly, um, maybe even epistemically reckless. All that I've described so far is a fool's hope. Um, hope alone is not sufficient for transformation. Um, well, before you go and call me silly, know that I agree. Um, hope is indeed not sufficient for transformation. I'm, I will argue as well that faith is also necessary. But let me expand. If I were a betting man, I'd wager that many of us here would define faith in a somewhat similar way to belief, though with a different relationship to reason. Faith is something like an affirmation of some proposition and assent to a true or false statement, um, but with a lack of reason. I have insufficient evidence for the proposition of whether it's true or false, but I affirm it anyway. I might call, you might call this view uh, blind faith. Uh, it's the, kind of the colloquial way that we use the term these days. And while we do use it this way, I don't think that it's the attitude that's often talked about in the early church. I think there's plenty of textual evidence for that, actually, um, but I don't have time to go into that. Um, just in case you're formulating any objections out there. <laughs> Though, uh, though to be fair, uh, faith started getting tied closely to belief very closely or very early on in Christianity. St. Augustine, for instance, ties faith to belief in this little workbook he made, Enchiridion on Faith, Hope, and Love. And there he says that faith believes, going on to tie faith to belief in things that are not seen. Faith in things that are not seen. We don't have good reason for believing the things, um, but we believe anyway. Instead of this view, uh, I take faith to function uh, as more of a rudder which guides our behavior towards some end. And here the onus is placed on the directed attention of the subject rather than the attitude we take on some proposition. It isn't that I affirm some proposition with lack of reason, it's that I attend to a proposition and treat it as if it's true. My behavior is adjusted in an, in an important way. I let it guide my behavior. Um, so it's, it's in this sense, justified by the hope. It's not justified by, like, by something else, some, something else. Admittedly, it's a subtle distinction here, but an important one. When we find hope in the gospel, we can take the object of our hope as an end, something that we desire to get to, a restored world, for instance. After all, what reasonable person wouldn't want this restored world, where suffering is no more and justice and mercy prevail? When we do this with a sufficiently strong desire, operating as if the hope will be realized, we operate in faith. We have set the rudder of our ship to a determinate point on the horizon, such that, come what will, we'll steer our way to that point. Faith here, then, is something like a resolution to realize a hope. Um, and yet, what drives the ship? By what means will it be carried to its destination? Enter the message of Christ. Um, it is by love that the ship is moved. The ineffable wind of the Holy Spirit, ruach, or the divine breath, catches the sail. 
We're taught indeed that God is love, and one of the central teachings of Christ is to love God and neighbor. So if our hope is in that, then that is going to be the thing that actually pushes it forward and the project becomes realized. (laughs) So when we place our hope in the gospel, we place our hope in the very thing that's going to drive us to what we are hoping for, which is a loving world. Um, That's the beauty of it. The process is very simple and it's very tightly packed. The hope is what actualizes itself. Notice, however, that belief has not been used once here in this version that I've that I've given you as a justificatory principle. Um, this, I think, would be something of a fair saying mistake. The parable of the sower does not ask the sower to offer their belief and reasons for their belief. This does not tra- transform rock into soil. Rather, faith, hope, and love do. The gospel is a message of hope that's rooted in the historical resurrection of Christ. Sufficient resolution to realize that hope guides the agent's faith, and the journey is powered by this, um, by this love that's underlying and undergirding the entire project. So, in closing, God is in the business of turning rocks into soil. We see it time and again in the stories of the Gospels. And the parable of the sower, while a message that in a way lets the sower off the hook, in the sense that it isn't the sower's fault that a rock doesn't take to the seed, it's nonetheless a parable that lets us question how the seed of the gospel is sown to begin with. If we present the seed as a set of dogmatic beliefs, as has been done for millennia, um, of course the seed will bounce off of the stone to die a dry death. It would have to engage in a bunch of rational gymnastics in order to, to get all of these beliefs to sit together in the right way, as it were. Instead, I urge that we share the inherent hope of the Christian message, which invigorates and enlivens the beauty of Christ's life and the promised future, calling us to partake in the divine mission ourselves. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected, visit circleofhope.church. You can also find us on Instagram or Facebook at circleofhopenet.com.